This is Super Investors in the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! This episode is brought to you by The Felder Report. I go through a ton of reading and research every week, and I take the five things that I found most valuable every week, put it together into a free Saturday morning email. You can sign up for that at thefelderreport.com. Right there on the homepage, click join now, and you'll be good to go. My guest for this episode is Lee Gehring. You could say that natural resources run in Lee's blood. Uh, The son of two oil and gas engineers, Lee has spent nearly his entire life studying markets and investments related to commodities. Over the past 30 years, he's become one of the most brilliant and passionate analysts and money managers in the industry. In this conversation, Lee shares the details of his macro and micro research process and how he applies them to investing in natural resource stocks. He also details the case for a coming energy crisis and why energy stocks present investors with a generational opportunity today. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Lee Gehring. wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500? Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. Lee, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you very much, Jesse, for having me. I'm really excited to have you. This is uh, an interview I've wanted to do for a while. I've been reading your stuff for the last couple of years. And uh, especially with what's going on in the market, I think this is is very timely. Um, But to kind of Give people an understanding of, you know, who Lee Gehring is, what your background. How did you first become interested in the world of finance? Okay, it, it's, it's it, not only uh, my interest in finance, but uh, it's, it's also a little bit interesting how uh, I became in, in, in so interested in the world of commodities and natural resources, which is one of my not only uh, what I would say, uh, a vocation, but also almost like an avocation for me. I'm, I'm really passionate about it and love it uh, and, and follow it with intense interest. And I should point out that my interest in the commodity space started all the way back when I was a little kid. You know, both my parents at various points in their career uh, worked for Exxon and they actually met at Exxon's old Bayway refinery, which is right outside of here in New York City on the on the New Jersey Turnpike, which, of course, makes New Jersey so infamous if you drive by it. Uh, but they met there uh, during World War II. My father was a chemical engineer uh, there working on um, a with a group that specialized in trying to overcome all the problems of, of refining and making 100 octane aviation fuel, which is, if you're interested in uh, like something what Daniel Jurgen says, he says that the, America's ability to make 100 octane aviation fuel is what won the war. Uh, since neither Germany nor Japan were ever able to, to, to develop a process to make it commercially. But my parents actually met at that refinery. And is it from a, a time as a little kid, I you know, remember my father talking extensively about his experience in the oil and gas industry and uh, all the, the, the various experiences that he had. And you know, he used to lecture my brother and me too about this is this is so true. Back in the early nineteen mid nineteen sixties, he would say, "Sons, uh, you know, we're burning a lot of hydrocarbons, and, and uh, you know, at some point, putting all those hydrocarbons in the air could wind up changing our climate." And that's no joke. I and mean, he was way ahead of his time. You know, he used to he used to lecture my brother and me about how oil was made uh, or how it came about to be, and how it was a finite process. And he was also a believer that someday we're going to run out. And I suspect that even though the the, the the term um, Hubbard never came up. I'm sure that he was a follower of Hubbard's research, which was which was becoming very well known in the in the early 1960s. Um, you know, he also we used to talk about other things too. Like, for example, there's a little bit of a hydrogen craze going on right now, and in, in, in use in fuel cells. And my my father always would say, he said, you know, "Sons, fuel cells will never work because." He said, do you have, have any understanding of how much energy is required to make hydrogen? Which I think is, is a very interesting subject into itself. But anyway, I grew up fast, becoming fascinated with the whole oil industry and in the world of natural resources in general. I went to college right at the height of the second energy crisis back, uh, which started in 1977, 78, 79. Um, and uh, I did a lot of work when I was in, in college um, on 
the economics of, of energy and uh, its use to the economy. I disappointed my father. I never, I never became a hardcore engineer like he was. He wanted to become either a chemical or petroleum engineer. I didn't. I majored in economics and math. Uh, but uh, my interest goes all the way back, back to that. It sounds like, you know, it's it's in your blood. And so I was going to ask you, why did you not go into a career, you know, uh, in oil and gas? Why did you choose finance? Was it uh, just, you know, your your experience in college and, and, and studying the different uh, topics? Was that the kind of what, what drew you to uh, yeah, the investing side? Yeah. In, in fact, what it was is that, uh, you know, gr- growing up, my father always told my brother and me, again, you should read a newspaper every day. And I never took that very, very seriously, except when I got to college, I took an economics 101 course my freshman year, and they gave away a free copy of the Wall Street Journal. I started to read it intensely, and I, I, I discovered that I was incredibly interested about everything that was in there. And I took a couple uh, security, security uh, finance courses. I became more and more fascinated with it. And I think by the time I was a, a, a sophomore in, in, uh, in college, I realized that I wanted to get into the finance industry in some capacity. And so I did, I came to work on Wall Street uh, right out of college. I worked in the, in the trust department uh, in an old line Wall Street bank uh, starting before the bull market started in the early 80s. And, by, uh, and, and I always wanted to somehow combine my interest in finance with running money in the natural resource space. And I finally got my opportunity in the late 1980s. I became the backup portfolio manager of the Prudential Jenison Natural Resource Fund and series of natural resource funds that they had. Uh, by 1991, I became the lead portfolio manager. And I sort of now have been doing exactly what I want to do my whole life for the last 30 years. And, and that's managing a, a resource-focused uh, equity portfolio. Yes. And, and being able to, to do uh, what I would call very high-level intense research on various global uh, commodity markets. Well, so let's talk about that. <clears throat> your your investing framework, from my just reading of your of your work, seems like it's really kind of macro driven. Is that is that fair to say? It, it's it's yes and no. We we do do a huge amount of macro work, but one of the things that we do is we do do a huge amount of what I would call very creative and in depth uh, stock selection in an attempt that you know, when we did, when we finally decide that a, a bull market in commodities is about to take off. Based upon our research, we, we then put together a, an equity portfolio where we believe that those equities have the best the best chance of capturing uh, the largest amount of the return in the commodity market, but at the same time, um, you know, minimizing control the risk that 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 is involved in investing in equities, which there are a lot in the natural resource space. Yeah, and so I, I I'm just curious to know more about that risk discipline because you know as a value investor. We might use things like margin of safety uh, and demand a you know discount to net asset value or fair value uh, to try and and, and limit risk. Um, you know, a trader might just say, uh, you know, I'm I'm looking to capture the trend and I I don't want to you know own something that's falling in price. What what does your risk kind of discipline look like? Well, what we do is we we're very very careful to size our our various or equity positions according to what we believe the, the risks are. Obviously, we do, we do a evaluation analysis of every security that we own. So you know, given a normalized commodity price, every one of our, our stocks that we own, we do have a, uh, a net asset value per share. And from that, we get a price target. But we then we, we adjust it for various things. We adjust it for the, the amount of debt that's outstanding. Uh, what would be the probability of commodity prices stay low for significantly longer than what we thought? What will that do to the impairment of our asset? And we will we use the size uh, of the position as the way to, to manage the risk in the portfolio. And, and I've been through so many cycles in the last 30 years, you know, bull markets and severe bear markets, that obviously we, we must be doing something right because even those bear markets, you know, we there have been periods when we've had some weak performance, but we've never had anything that would impair the long-term track record of what we're doing. Gotcha. And, and so it sounds like it's kind of a, a stress test. Yes, it's a stress test based upon uh, the, 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 the risk, the risk, I'm sorry, the reward upside versus what we perceive as the risk, which primarily is a function of how much debt that the companies carry. Uh, 
and, and what that would do to, the, to the, the impairment of that asset. Right. And, and, you know, you, I would also just assume that, you know, when you're analyzing the, the other side of the equation, the reward side, you're looking for those stocks that are going to reward, you know, uh, or, you know, that are going to have just, I guess, unusual upside um, yeah. relative to average. That's also based on kind of the similar process of that stress testing. Yes. And what we do is we, like I said, we, in each of the various commodity markets where we make investments, we, we, we come up with what we believe is a long-term equilibrium price for the commodity, which will oftentimes be a lot different than today's price. And then using that price, we will uh, then come up with the net asset value. And, you know, what it will show is, is usually is that the most marginal companies, those with marginal assets, smaller cap, and have lots of debt, also have by far the greatest amount of upside if prices recover. But, you know, we, we, we don't construct a portfolio with those type of names. We will have those names in our portfolio, but they will be smaller positions. So it's, it's really a marriage of, um, you know, traditional security analysis paired with your, your unique macro framework. That, that's exactly right. And, okay. you know, it, 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 as far as the macro framework, I should say that, you know, we're value investors. And, and we think and we believe that the best time that value occurs in the natural resource markets or commodity markets, it's when a time when the commodity price is depressed and everyone is convinced that there'll never be a recovery in that commodity price. The companies that are operating in that sector of the market have limited or sometimes the entire industry will lose a good portion of its profitability. Valuations will be incredibly cheap based upon things like price to book value, certainly not in PEs because many times the companies won't be making any money. But that, that is the, the type of market that we like to get involved in. And uh, that's what a, one of the things that our research does is that we try to pick turning points in those deep, vicious bear markets. Well, and that's exactly why I wanted to invite you to c- come on the show, Lise, because I think you guys have shared a chart um, that's been really popular with my audience. I think I've shared it a couple times, either in my weekend email or, or different things. Um, and it basically shows, I think, the, uh, the relative valuation of commodities to financial assets. And, uh, you know, on a very long time term time frame, um, commodities may have never been as cheap as they are today relative to financial assets. And that, that's exactly true. You know, what we've done is we've, we've, We've taken the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index, and we, which has only been around since I'm going to take a guess the 1980, or the I'm sorry, maybe it's 1970. And what we've done is we've 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 created the equivalent of it going all the way back to the turn of the last century. And what we've done is we've plotted the the the, uh, the returns of financial assets versus the returns of commodities. And what that has shown is that there's only been in the last 120 years there's only been uh, three times previous to this cycle where commodities have been as, as cheap as they have relative to the financial assets. And each one of those times was a, a, a great, great time to be an investor in the commodity space. Well, and that just begs the question, I guess this is the, probably the most question, uh, more popular question that I get from my audience, which is, okay, uh, I, I see that commodities are cheap. I want to invest in them. H- how do I go about investing in commodities? Well, one of the things is it's, it's, it's very, very difficult to invest in the commodities themselves. And, you know, it's interesting uh, investing in the oil ETF, which is for most investors is the only way that you can invest in oil. Uh, is Look what happened just in the last uh, uh, several months back in April where the, the ETF, both oil prices and the ETF, went into severe negative territory, which was, I would make the case, we could talk about why oil went to minus $40 a barrel. It was, it was, a, it was a, a price that obviously uh, was a one-time phenomenon happening, and oil should never have been there. I mean, the, the Brent price in uh, the same day, I think, closed at close to $20 a barrel, which was probably where the WTI probably price should have been as well. So investing in the commodities is always very difficult. And why Why is that? Well, most of what people forget is that when you invest in a commodity market, in most commodity markets, you wind up paying to invest in the commodity futures contract. And that 
premium price that you pay is called the contango. And there's a variety of reasons why the contango exists. It has to do with opportunity costs and storage costs, things like that, which you don't pay when you buy a futures contract. And that makes the future price futures price higher. Well, that's a cost. And over time, when you have to constantly roll those futures contracts, you wind up uh, basically paying for that that uh, that contango, which which takes a huge amount of, out of your return. And so investing in commodities directly is, is a very, very difficult uh, a thing to do. And uh, primarily because of the contango. We like to invest in equities. You know, we think that you know, we like to say that investing in the equities, you don't have to pay the contango for all practical purposes. Since you're long the commodity, you earn the contango. So uh, when you make a, an investment in natural resources, uh, over time, you will, we believe you will significantly outperform by investing in the commodity indices themselves. And in your most recent commentary, you spend a good deal of time on um, the energy sector in particular. Would you say that's the most... Um, attractive opportunity within the resources group right now. Yeah, and I do. And, and and what I would phrase it is that every once in a while, an asset class gets thrown into what I would call the uninvestable bucket, and it doesn't happen very much. And you know, an asset class that would that could qualify that gets thrown into the into the uh, uninvestable bu- bucket would be an asset class that's been around a long time. It has a huge uh, amount of, of importance to the economy. And however, because of uh, various issues, which are deemed to be permanent, but turn out to be transitory, that asset class in investors' minds becomes uninvestable. And I'll give you some great examples of that over the last 50 years. And uh, we can see how it applies to the what I would call the great uninvestable asset class today, which is oil. Uh, go all the way back to 19, the late 1970s. What were the two asset classes that were unequivocally considered uninvestable? You know, and most of the, most of the listeners probably won't be able to answer that, but they were stocks and bonds. And of course, you know, for those that are interested, the most famous, the famous um, thing that came out back then was the uh, the August 1979 cover of Business Week magazine, which on the front cover proclaimed literally the death of equities. And why did why did equities die? And they, it also applied to the bond market as well, which at the time were called uh, certificates of confiscation. Why were stocks uninvestable and bonds uninvestable? It's because of inflation. Uh, inflation at the time had become an intractable problem that every Every investor believed that we would never be able to solve. And if inflation kept high and and continued to accelerate, the returns on financial assets would always be subpar. And therefore, both stocks and bonds were thrown into the the uninvestable asset class. Well, how correct was that? That was probably the Business Week covers story in 1979 was probably the worst market call ever. You know, the stock market is up almost 35 fold from that point. The 30-year bond, which no one believed you could invest in, has turned out to be an incredible investment. So that's a classic example of an uninvestable class that I just described. Now, this is the other uninvestable class I'm going to describe is, is, is much more interesting because it's in the process of becoming a very investable asset class today. And that's gold. You know, if, if for, for gold investors, remember, uh, by the late 1990s, gold itself had been thrown in the uninvestable bucket as well. And why was that? Well, there'd been a, a huge source of new supply that had really come out of nowhere. And that new source of supply was central bank selling. Central banks, which of course had huge amounts of gold in their vaults, going all the way back to when they were all on the gold standard and, the, and then the, 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 the uh, Bretton Woods Gold Exchange Standard, which is in effect up to 1971, finally decided after gold spent years and years going down in price that they had to get rid of it. And they all, all the European central banks, a lot of the global central banks said, made public announcements, I'm selling my gold. And they started. By 1999, it had gotten so bad that the, uh, the U.S. Treasury had to call in all the global central banks in a forced meeting where they, where they basically signed the Washington Agreement, which effectively limited their sales to, to 400 tons a year, which was a huge amount of gold. And 
everyone believed that the central banks would never stop selling gold. And there were a couple of very famous gold bears back then that said, you know, this, the central banks will ultimately sell all their gold because it's, it, it's an asset class that's known is not needed in, in today's fiat money world. Well, uh, was gold uninvestable at the time? Uh, no, absolutely not. In fact, since 1999, 2000, this is hard to believe, even with this huge stock market boom we've had, gold has been by far the best performing asset class since then. You radically outperformed the st- both stock and bond markets by owning it. And it was firmly thrown into the uh, uninvestable bu- uh, bucket. I would say that oil is in that uninvestable bucket today. Why? ESG. You know, the, the whole ESG movement is trying to restrict the amount of uh, money that's invested in the global oil industry. Um, demand. Everyone seems to be, believe that, that we've reached not a point of peak supply in oil, but we've actually reached a point of peak, I'm sorry, peak supply of oil. We've now reached a, a point of peak demand. That is, we, peak, demand is peaked right now and will begin to actually decrease for the first time in almost the history of oil. And finally, you know, there's a lot of um, um, environmentalists, uh, activists running around that the oil industry uh, should wind up paying for the huge amounts of damage that have been done to the economy in the last uh, 50 years through the burning of, of hydrocarbons. And whether it be CO2 or other damages, they, they believe that we should levy these huge fines on the, on the oil and gas industry to pay for these damages. So you have all these factors that are at work that have depressed oil prices to incredibly low levels. And how low well, you know, back in, this is hard to believe, but back in 1980, the, by far the largest sector of the S&P 500 was the energy industry. It topped out at a little bit over 30% of the S&P. Six of the 10 largest market capitalization stocks in the world were energy related. Where are we today? The energy component of the S&P uh, 500 now stands, I believe, at the 2.3%. It is the smallest industry group today within the S&P 500. And Exxon, mighty Exxon, which used, which has now been thrown out of the Dow Jones Industrial uh, Average as well, sports a market cap, which is basically equal to today to Zoom. So it's, um, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, an industry which is incredibly depressed and I think offers incredible, uh, investment opportunity. Well, I, I love that you you take it back to 1980, and and I mean, I, and I also love the the concept of an uninvestable asset class. There might not be any better buy signal than when the consensus decides something's uninvestable. Um, but I mean, just it feels in so many ways like we're at the exact opposite of 1980, where you were talking about it. You know, an inflation then is what made stocks and bonds uninvestable, um, and disinflation. You know, is is what everybody's just extrapolating out into the future indefinitely. But one of the greatest ironies in the market right now to me is that, you know, back then in 1980, Paul Volcker, who was dedicated to breaking the back of inflation. Um, Today, we have Jay Powell, who's committed to creating inflation. Essentially, he's made the uh, virtually the opposite commitment that Volcker's made. And at the same time, uh, we're seeing, uh, you know, Energy stocks are the most hated asset class on the planet. Probably, you know, as Jason Gepford from Sentiment Traders pointed out, maybe the most hated sector of the stock market of all time. It's just it's so ironic to see how things have changed so much in 40 years. That's one of the great things you do in your in your latest commentary. Yeah, Jesse, those are all great points. Here's some other things to think about, which I think are very amusing. Again, going back to, you know, I'm a big follower of of magazine covers, uh, business publication covers, uh, you know, they often mark, uh, mark, uh, uh, you know, huge seminal terminal, uh, turning points in markets. You know, and when you figure what happens is that, you know, a, a trend gets going for so long, it becomes so ingrained in investors psychology that even the, 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 the wizened old editors of old, uh, business publications eventually get, get, uh, convinced that these trends are never going to end. And of course, 
the, the, the most famous one was the 1979 cover of Business Week magazine, The Death of Equities, Why Inflation is Killing the Stock Market. And like you said, it's exactly right, because it was literally, literally only two months after that, that Paul Volcker came to, uh, to the head of the Fed, raised interest rates aggressively, basically had bonds sport four and five percent real yields. These are the, by far the highest real yields that had ever been uh, produced in, in the bond market, and they wound up killing inflation and doing it in. And now here's an interesting corner, you know, uh, you know another bookend, a 40-year bookend to that very uh, infamous event, famous event, is that back in April of uh, uh, sorry, 2019, what's on the cover of Business Week magazine again? Now it's called uh, Bloom, Business Week Bloomberg magazine, but it's called The Death of Inflation. And on the cover is a picture of a dead dinosaur. And, you know, it's so interesting that after the 1979 cover, it was only two months before Volcker put in place a massive uh, disinflation and inflation policy that literally within, you know, a, less than 12 months, that Powell puts in place what will be perceived, I believe, as a very inflationary policy. And you've been tipped off. It's going to happen. The fact that it was on the cover of Business Week magazine in April of 2019 is, is, means that it's coming up. It's approaching rapidly. Well, and, you know, as my friend uh, Peter Atwater recently pointed out to me that uh, – the Economist also recently declared, you know, the the end of or the death of energy, and they famously did also back in I think it was 1999 and 2003. They ran a couple of similar covers, you know, right as it was right before the huge boom in oil prices. Yeah, and don't underestimate the the powers. And I, and I read that Economist article. And I should have brought that up. You're right. Classic death of oil story. Uh, but you know, here's another one. You know, back to you know how it signals gives you a great signal that the this asset class has become uninvestable. The Economist recently with the oil, that's a great one. But we also forget like with, with, with gold back in 1999 at the bottom. In the, now, why the Financial Times chose to do this, I don't know. But they actually ran a cover story on the front page of their newspaper. The title was The Death of Gold. And that was December of 1997. And that was, that was the – that was the – a piece of proof that you needed that gold was the buy of a lifetime. And gold, when that on when that came out in December of 1997, gold was $275 an ounce. It traded sideways for a little while, but it was the buy of a lifetime. And you've been given the same same sort of buy indicator with that Economist article. Yeah, and I love how you can compare and contrast uh, Zoom and Exxon. They, I, I didn't even realize they have virtually the identical market cap. The only difference is Exxon trades at you know 0.66 times sales. It's its cheapest valuation in 30 plus years. And yes, yes. Zoom trades literally a hundred times sales. It's yes. Really, it's it's mind-boggling. Um, I want to dig into the energy thesis a little bit more. Um, Howard Marks has written, he's one of my you know, favorite books is the most important thing. But my, one of my favorite quotes from the book is to achieve superior investment results, you have to hold non-consensus views regarding value and they have to be right. Reading through your Q2 report, it seems to me that you have a, a, a strongly non-consensus view regarding the value of energy stocks. And you've made an extensive case as to why you believe you're right. Um, consensus is clearly demand's going to stay depressed and supplies are easily going to come back online when the economy recovers. Um, why is this, uh, why is consensus wrong? Yeah, it, it, it's, it's very interesting. Um, we'll start with demand because I believe that that, that is the, you know, the more popular subject today that because of electric vehicles, um, you know, the, the, the ESG movement that we're going to see a, 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 a the world demand for oil actually begins to, to, to undertake a sustainable long-term uh, decline. And, you know, we, we disagree with this. Uh, you know, we've done a huge amount of work that looks at uh, if you, at various points of GDP, how much oil input do you need to support that level of GDP? And it, it turns out that, that, for example, if, in the, in the OECD world, in the developed world, specifically like Japan, 
United States, Europe, we, we have reached a point where we're going to see very, very little oil growth going forward. And we haven't. We haven't seen much in the way of oil growth in, in the OECD world in the last uh, 25 years. However, what we have seen is a huge amount of oil growth that has taken place in the non-OECD world. And our belief is that that, that growth of oil in the non-OECD world is going to continue. And you know, it's based upon all the research we've done on the, like I said, the relationship of GDP per capita GDP and oil consumption. And what's going to happen in all those countries, if, the, if per capita GDP growth is going to continue, then uh, oil growth is going to continue at very, very strong rates. And of course, the, the, the poster child of this phenomenon is what's happened in China in the last 20 years. And, you know, we, we wrote a couple really great papers, literally all the way back in 2009 and 2010, that, that, that we made projections on what China's oil consumption would wind up being in the following 10 years. And the numbers were, were phenomenal because if you remember back then, there was a lot of people saying that China's oil consumption had topped out. And back then, I believe China's oil consumption was about 7 million barrels a day in 2008. And, and today... As of today, it's almost hitting 15 million barrels a day. And based upon analysis, it's going, to, it's going to grow by another 10 million barrels a day in the next 10 to 15 years. And it's not only countries like China where the demand, and I should point out, China's oil consumption it, since uh, for the first eight months of 2020 are now running 1 million barrels uh, per day higher than the same first eight months of 1999, even with all the COVID uh, pandemic disruptions. There is something still very strong happening in China regarding oil growth. But it's not only China, uh, India. India is, you know, people have given up on India that, you know, that it, you know, India is not China and it's not China. And I've been to India so many times and I, I, I understand that, that, that uh, statement that it's not China. How, however, India, we would make the case from a from a, a a point where India begins to see rapid increases in commodity consumption, including the consumption of oil, that India is today is where China was in the late 1990s. And, you know, it's interesting, it, other than, you know, obviously it's now being distorted by the whole COVID-19 disruption and lockdowns taking place in India. But, you know, India has now slowly crept up to being second source line item growth of oil in the world today. China's the top. Number two is India. Pre-2019, uh, India's oil consumption crept up to be almost 300,000 barrels per day per year. And this is happening whether it be in Vietnam, Philippines, um, Indonesia, um, all these countries in Southeast Asia are now all have all entered that period of rapid uh, intensification of oil consumption. We call it the S-curve. They're all re, you know, entering that rapid point of their S-curve acceleration of oil consumption. So we believe that demand is going to be very, very difficult to squeeze oil demand out of the global total consumption of, in the global economy in the next 10 years. So we, we think demand is, 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 is uh, going to continue to, de to defy the bears. But what's really interesting is what's happening on the supply side. The one of the interesting things that people probably don't know this, but you know, over the last ten years, near one hundred percent of global non-OPEC oil supply growth—that is, oil supply growth outside of the OPEC world—almost one hundred percent of it has come from the U.S. shales. There has been, in fact, you know, we, we wrote about this about ten years ago, saying that non-OPEC non-U.S. oil supply growth was going to turn negative, which is exactly what it has. In the last 10 years, non-OPEC, non-U.S. oil supply growth has shrunk by about 150,000 barrels per day. So the shales have been the only source of oil supply growth. And we believe that the shales have now have passed their peak in production and now will begin to decline. And no one no one believes this and no one understands uh, what's happening in the shells. And we have done tremendous amount of work in the shells. And we're pretty confident that the, the, the great era of shale is over in the U.S. 
Well, part of what you refer to in a lot of your research is um, your neural networks in, in, in understanding how these trends are developing. Can you, I guess, um, tell us what those are and, and how you use them? Yeah, what, what we've done is, is, is um, my partner, Adam Rosenzweig, is very, very mathematically and, and, and computer savvy. And what, what we've done is that we have, we have taken a database of every well drilled in the United States over the last uh, 10 years. We go, we go back even further than that. So what we've done is we've captured just about every shale and uh, oil, I'm sorry, shale oil and shale gas well drilled. And what, what we've done is that we put all that data into uh, this neural net network. And this neural network, what we told it is, is that we said, okay, we're going to give you all this data. You, you, you teach yourself on how to analyze this and tell us a, a variety of things on what you learn. And, and, I, and I'll give you a great example of what use we put it to. You know, uh, this is the type of question that, that, that it can answer that almost no one can. You know, a number of years ago, there was a common belief that in the, in the oil shales, that there was this, because of changes in uh, completion design, completion technology, uh, you know, things like you know, longer laterals, more stage tracks, more propent being put down whole, all these types of things, is that you were rapidly increasing the, 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 the productivity of drilling. So what you were doing is you were taking a well, a, a, a rig that was drilling a well on a tier two prospect. And traditionally, that tier two prospect would only produce half as much oil as a tier one prospect. But by doing all these changes in, in completion technologies, you were turning that tier one well into a tier one well. And everyone believed that. Well, that's an interesting question because it's a very different question to try to, to disaggregate you know, where the productivity increases are coming from and things like that. And what we did is we said, okay, neural network, tell us where these productivity improvements are coming from. You know, as you teach yourself what makes a great well and et cetera. And so what the neural network, and remember these neural networks are all, they are, um, you know, carefully designed to fit, to prevent overfitting and things like that. So we, you know, we don't get spurious correlations and things like that. But what it came back and said, you know, hey, people, the, the increase in productivity that you're seeing from changing completion technology, technologies is much smaller than what your, your consensus opinion is. Where all the productivity improvements are coming from is that you are just taking all you're doing is taking tier well rigs that are drilling tier two prospects and you're moving them over onto tier one prospects. That's that's ninety that's eighty percent of your increase in productivity. Old fashioned high grading, what they used to call it in the mining business. And so the thing is, is that we would we would use the neural network to try to answer these very very difficult questions, and we also use it you know on, on an individual analyzing the properties of individual companies because it can tell us, it can map for us what are tier one properties, what are tier two properties, who has the great tier one properties, et cetera, things like that. So that's what we use it for. And that's interesting to me because uh, if it's this process of, of high grading, um, you know, that was exacerbated by uh, COVID, then it sets up a, a, um, I guess a clash with the consensus where you know supplies aren't going to be able to come back online as quickly as as most people believe. Yeah, and that's that's very very interesting, Jesse. And just you know, one of the things too that we've got this idea that you know these shale fields are unique in the sense that they that they, they almost have an unlimited ability to produce oil, but nothing could be further than the truth. They are very much like a conventional oil or gas reservoir. You know, you start drilling, you begin to increase activity, production ramps up for a number of years. You keep adding more and more rigs, you reach a plateau. And then all of a sudden uh, these fields begin to decline, just like any sort of conventional oil and gas uh, property. And we have two great examples of that in the, in the, in the gas shales that, where that has already occurred. And they ironically, not ironically, predictably, they are the first two great shale gas fields to be developed. 
One is the Barnett, which started production in the, in the early 2000s. And the other was the, the Fayetteville Shale in Arkansas, which was started in you know, 2005 and 2006. Both those fields had very, very steep ramp ups, peaked, and now are in steep decline. And, you know, both fields today are producing only about as half as much gas from their peaks. Uh, and I should point out that both fields, neither field today has a rig operating on it. There's no drilling taking place. You know, we believe the same thing is going to happen with the oil shales. And what it has to do is that, you know, your drilling productivity begins to decline. Why? As just you mentioned, you run out of tier one, tier one prospects. And so you have to drill more and more tier two prospects. Those tier two prospects are not as productive. They require twice as much capital. You get the same, uh, you know, the same amount of oil out of the ground and it just isn't worthwhile. And eventually you just stop. And I should point out that here's an interesting fun fact. You know, again, the neural network tells us this is that when did the Barnett and the Fayetteville peak? They peaked when 60% of their tier one drilling inventory was drilled up, was drilled. And I should point out that you have reached that same point in the, uh, in the, the, um, the Eagleford Shale. You've reached that same point in the, um, in the, in the, uh, in the Bakken, I'm sorry. And you're very, very closely you've reaching it in the both sides of the Permian. So the thing is, is that, you know, the best of the shale days are over. Well, I, I love that you, um, you know, compare this to uh, the when gold became uninvestable in the late 90s as a result of, I guess, people extrapolating the new gold supply that was coming to market back then. We've seen so much new oil supply come to market in the, I don't know, since, the, you know, as a part of the shale revolution, that people are just extrapolating this huge supply increase just out indefinitely into the future. And, and it really does kind of rhyme with that earlier time with gold. Oh, it, the overlap with gold, you know, most, it's that whole, the bottoming of the gold market 20 years ago, you know, there's a lot of investors now that, you know, it is, it is an investor generation ago now. Uh, don't remember what it was like, but I vividly remember we were very, very bullish on gold back then. And for those that are, of your listeners that are curious, you know, I was profiled in Forbes magazine, a big profile of me uh, in May of 2000. And gold was still $285 an ounce. And the headline on the profile is gold, $2,000 an ounce, question mark. Um, you know, and we were bullish. And we, we said that gold was, was set up to be the, the best performing asset class of the decade. Now you're right about supply. It was it was even I even I had to really, you know, uh, go through a period of internal fortitude to go through that period because the, the amount of new supply was intense because it was not only central banks that had become aggressive sellers of gold, but the entire gold industry had lost faith in in the ability uh, of what the gold price would the gold price ever recover, and they began aggressive forward selling their gold. And, you know, they would, there's an irony here in that, you know, all these forward gold transactions that took place starting in 1995 and gathered strength for the next seven, eight years, they were all facilitated by bullion banks being able to borrow gold from the central banks. So the, 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 the central banks at the same time they were selling were lending their gold out to producers who were forward selling it. Um, and then what you had is you had every, you know, the central bank say, saying, I'm selling all my gold. It's not an asset class that I want anymore. All the producers were selling. And then what, this, what, the, what the hedge funds did and the bullion banks themselves, they went to the central banks and said, oh, by the way, can we borrow some gold from you? And the central bank said, fine, borrow as much as you want. We don't want it anymore. And they took, they, they front, front, ran, front ran both the producers and the central banks. And so there was this torrent of gold supply, but it produced one of the most undervalued markets ever. And that's why gold is still outperforming to this day. And oil is the same way. You know, everyone is, like you said, Jesse, everyone is extrapolated that the shale is the source of massive supply growth. The shales are impressive. They are. I mean, for example, they've gone from almost zero oil production to basically over well over 10 million barrels a day in almost a 10-year period. That's incredible. Uh, and, uh, however, we would say that, that, you know, everyone has extrapolated that going forward and we believe just the opposite is going to happen. They're gonna, it's going to start to severely decline. 
Well, part of this consensus, the bearish consensus towards oil is related to alternative energy and how alternative energy is going to, you know, I guess, come on quicker than, than uh, you know, people believe. What, what are your thoughts towards, I guess, you know, the alternative eating into the demand for, you know, uh, fossil fuels? Well, we, we've done a, we've done a huge amount of work on it. We have a very, uh, I would I would call it another very contrarian contrarian uh, viewpoint uh, about the amount of impact that electric vehicles will ultimately have on the, the global oil transportation market. And, and what it really comes down to, you know, there's this. Uh, I think he's Professor Emeritus up in Winnipeg, Backlov Smill. And, you know, he, he's written a couple of very interesting books about, you know, the progression of economies and, and their energy consumption. And it turns out that, that the advancement of, of new technologies is basically ha- occur because they improve the ener- energy, inefic- energy efficiency of the economy. And I'm going to tie this in with a great example in a second. But, you know, one of the problems with EVs is that when you look at all the energy that goes into the production of an EV and the battery, which is incredibly energy intensive, including all the production of all the metals, the, 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 the production of renewable electricity, uh, which, again, is, is much more energy intensive than what you think, that when you add all that together, it, it, the, the energy, you know, the energy in versus energy out of an EV will never, will never uh, match the, that of an internal combustion engine. Now, I know that that's not, that is not consensus opinion because everyone says, oh, we'll eventually do it. But here's a good example. You know, just, just it was uh, two weeks ago that um, Elon Musk in his battery day was going to lay out how they were going to, they were going to reach in the next several years, the ability to produce a car uh, an EV vehicle for $25,000. And, and it, it came out that they just, that, that there's no way that they can do that. And everyone said, oh my God, very, very disappointing. A lot of reasons for that. Uh, however, you know, the, the funny thing is given, given an EV or an internal combustion engine and given the costs that are associated for both, ultimately everyone will buy the internal combustion engine. And because it's too expensive to buy an EV. Now, I'll give you a great example of that. You know, one of the things about Norway is that Norway's, you know, they trumpet the fact that 50% of their total car sales in Norway are EVs today. Now, mind you, they're heavily, heavily subsidized by the government. But what the average, you know, what the average Norwegian does is that whenever they have to drive on a toll highway or take a ferry where the tolls on both of them are incredibly steep, they use the EV because EVs get a big rebate on that. You don't pay the tolls if you have an EV. However, when they go up into the mountains to go to their, their cabins up there on weekends where there's no charging stations, or whatever, they take the, the internal combustion engine. So, you know, it's that, you know, that's a good example of, of, you know, why do they do that? Well, it's, it's cheaper to run the, the, the internal combustion engine than it is the EV, especially when you're worried about, range anxiety and things like that. Another good example is that, you know, going all the way back to the 1960s, this, is, this, fill, this goes into the whole backlog smell argument, how a new technology, if it's more energy intensive, can't displace the old technology, is the Concorde. You know, the Concorde was developed by the European governments, France and, and, and the UK, back in the late 60s. And it was a, it was a technological marvel that produced tremendous potential changes in global travel that you literally cut the time flying in half between us east coast and europe but there was only problem there was one problem with the with the concord is that it basically takes almost a two and a half times as much fuel to travel that same distance versus per passenger versus the completing airline competing airline at the time was the boeing 747 so the the, the concord never was able to, to really gain market share. Why? It was just too expensive to run. And, and so in the end, now this is interesting because look at the comparison that's developing here. Uh, you know, the, the Concorde became what I would call the plaything of investment bankers, rock stars, and Hollywood celebrities. No one else could really afford to fly it. 
Does that sound a little bit like the people that are buying the Teslas today? It, it, it is. And that's the problem. Unless we could reduce significantly the cost to produce batteries, which we're going to need another technological breakthrough, that you know, we'll never get to the same energy economics of what internal or internal combustion engine can combine. So that's not to say it's not going to happen because the, the governments can do two things. They can either heavily subsidize the purchase of EVs, which they're doing right now, or they could outlaw they could outlaw the internal combustion engine, which they might wind up doing. So those are the risks right there. Well, it's interesting. And, and when I look at the whole case that you're making in terms of supply and demand, and, and you argue yourself in your latest commentary that this the demand-supply imbalance that we're facing right now that really nobody appreciates is, you know, uh, I guess leading us on a path to another energy crisis, um, even on par with kind of what we saw during the 70s. Um, it, I, I take it then, if that's your thesis, then you don't have the same view of inflation as, as uh, investors, you know, buying 10-year Treasury notes yielding 60 basis points today. You know, it, it's funny. I, I think what's going to happen, and, you know, I, I like to say that it's going to be a black swan event that causes inflation to return. Now, whether it's a, it's a potential problem in, in our agricultural business, whether we have a, a series of, of uh you know, poor, poor grain harvest on a global basis, or it could be that all of a sudden we, we wake up one day and say, oh my God, we're short 2 million barrels of oil versus demand or, or something like that. But I believe that it's going to be an event like that that causes inflation. We have inflation today, except that inflation is just taking place in technology companies. And, and, and that something will happen that will cause that inflation to shift into, into hard assets. And I, and I should point out, you know, Jesse, going back to that, the, that chart about how cheap commodity prices are today, and they were back in 1970, and they were in 1999, especially in 1970, is that uh, commodity prices, you know, the, the setup for what happened in 1970 is almost the exact setup to today. There was a huge amount of financial speculation taking place in the late 1960s, which wound up in the, the nifty 50 blow off in 1972. There was a huge amount of, uh, of money being printed and there was the end of a, of a monetary system. You know, when Nixon took the U S off the Bretton Woods gold exchange standard in 1971, you know, we've got the same thing today. We have huge amount of money being printed we have um, huge speculation taking place in the stock market. We have the FANG stocks instead of the Nifty 50. And uh, we have what's going to be perceived as the, the coming collapse of the fiat money system. So we are all the way back in 19, 1970 again. And, you know, it will, my gut feel is it will be driven by the emergence of inflation, which will come out of nowhere and maybe be driven by some sort of black swan event that we can't even predict right now. But it's coming. And, and so I would assume, you know, that uh, you believe, I think the Wall Street Journal read an article last weekend or last week about inflation protection and what are the best, um, you know, ways to protect your portfolio from inflation. Um, hidden in that article was, you know, energy stocks are usually one of the best ways to do that. They didn't highlight that in the article, I think, because probably energy is so hated they couldn't couldn't quite get away with that. But one of the things you point out is that since 2016, oil has nearly kept up. Uh, excuse me, with gold. And yet the oil related stocks are down 50% while, you know, gold miners and things are up 200% over that, that time frame. Um, it, it seems to me that, you know, this commodity cycle might already, you know, have, have started working, but oil's giving you an opportunity here to, to kind of, I mean, you look at what oil's done this year. Oil's rebounded strongly, but the energy stocks are on their lows. Yeah, the energy stocks are down almost 50% for the year. Here's a, here's a fun fact, uh, Jesse, regarding uh, what characterizes an uninvestable asset class, going back to gold. Between, you know, gold had its, its, final, its final bear market run started in, in the end of 95 into 96 and bottomed in 2001. From 95 to 2001, the average gold stock during that period declined by 85% in value. The average oil stock since oil prices peaked in the fourth quarter of 2014 
to today are now down 85%. Another good indication that gold has, has, has been firmly thrown into the uninvestable asset bucket class and the bottom is here. Um, yes, I think gold, I think that, that, uh, that oil stocks are, are uh, incredibly cheap here and are a, a very cheap way to give you some, some inflation projection. By, it, they are by far the cheapest way to give you uh, inflation projection. You know, it, here's, another, here's another funny thing. Again, gold and oil. You know, back when gold was an uninvestable asset class in 99 and 2000, gold priced to oil was incredibly cheap. You know, we've, we've, we've studied this going all the way back to 1858. And when gold is cheap, out of favor, undervalued, one ounce of gold only buys 10 ounce, 10 barrels of oil. When gold is very popular, expensive, or oil is very de depressed, gold will buy 30 barrels of oil. You know, back in 19, 2000, uh, gold was so depressed relative to oil that an ounce of gold only in the summer of 2000 only bought seven and a half barrels of oil. You had to go all the way back to 1919 to find a similar record low like that, near record low like that. Um, today, oil is incredibly cheap priced relative to gold, or oil is very, very expensive relative to gold. Right as we speak, last week, again, an ounce of gold bought over 50 barrels of oil, which X the uh, COVID-19 debacle that took place in March and then into April is by far the most expensive that oil, gold has ever been priced relative to oil. Oil is radically cheap. And I think it's a, an incredibly cheap way to give you some inflation projection. That that seems like the perfect way to kind of encapsulate the, uh, the generational opportunity I think we're seeing in energy right now. I want to totally change gears and ask you something, you know, I guess a little bit more personal. What, are there any hobbies or anything, pastimes that you have that inform your view of markets? Yeah, and, and you know, my, my I in the last 25 years, my, my wife and I are, have, have, you know, we, we've become huge travelers and I've traveled all over the world. And, and I've been to places that, you know, very, very few people have ever been to. Like I've been to the, the infamous mining uh, community up in Norilsk in, in, in right smack in the middle of Siberia, 200 miles above the Arctic Circle. So I've been to a lot of different places and it's really, it's, it's really, you know, left an impression on me uh, uh, on the world and, and how the world has developed and what's happened to the world in, in the last uh, 20 years. We've seen an incredible period of economic growth, um, which has benefited just, you know, we've lifted million, you know, billions of people out of poverty. Um, and it, it's, I've been able to watch all that, you know, take place with a front row seat, uh, you know, through my traveling, traveling um, adventures, things like that. So that to me has been one of the most uh, fascinating things about my life over the last 20 years. Well, and I'm sure it gives you, uh, you know, I just, uh, a totally different perspective, um, you know, outside, getting outside of Wall Street, outside of the markets and just kind of seeing a much more worldly view. Um, Lee, you've been very generous with your time. I'm, I'm really grateful to you. Is there uh, anywhere, you know, my listeners can kind of keep up with you and your ideas? Yes, we, we you know, we publish, you know, a big quarter letter, which is, you know, is out and in, put into the public domain. Uh, all our all our research going all the way back to where we started the firm in the first quarter of 2016 is, is on our website. Uh, you can access our website, www.gorozen.com. That's G-O-R-O-Z-E-N.com. Uh, you can download it all. It's all free. And uh, you can follow whatever we're saying. It, it usually, there's a lot of stuff there. And, you know, we, we speak, both Adam and I speak at a lot of conferences. We do, you know, podcasts and things like that. And a lot of our 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 presentations that we made are on the website as well. And I highly recommend everybody check it out. I read your stuff religiously and, and you're, like I said, not just generous with your time here on the podcast, very generous with uh, the results of all your research in those papers. It's, it's fantastic resource for people. Okay. Well, very good, Jesse. Thank you so much for having me on. And I really enjoyed the, the talk. Hey, thank you. This has been wonderful. I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful to you for taking the time. 
And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. As always, you can find notes and links related to this episode at thefelderreport.com. Thank you for listening, and until next time, buy low, sell high. Man looks in the abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss.